Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Father, we're so grateful tonight to, be, to have the chance to be together. We're so grateful for the way that you have shaped this church and the work that you do continue to do by your spirit in Redemption Hill and in churches throughout the city and our region and, through, and across the world. And so as we look again toward the book of Acts tonight and see the foundations that were laid for what your church would be, we ask that you would help us, that you would show us with clarity the things that we can learn, and, and, and Father, even more, that you would move by your spirit to bring these things about in and among and through us as a church. Help us to see the beauty of the gospel and to, of Jesus Christ and to see how, if, as we devote ourselves to that gospel, that it, it will shape us as a family and as a community. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, we, after a one-week pause, we're jumping back into a series through the first chapters of the book of Acts. Um, the series we've called it Beginnings, because Acts, it tells us that, the story of the beginning of this movement of Christianity and the beginning of the church. Um, Christianity is a movement that swept through the, the known world at the time and really changed the course of world history. And so there's, there's something amazing about looking back to the earliest days and the foundations of this movement that has been so shaping across the world. And, and, and tonight, as we come to that text, we really come to the beginnings of the church, the first glimpse we get of the community of the people of God coming together as a, a community, and, and how and we get a look into what that first church looked like, its characteristics, and the things that, it, they, that people devoted themselves to. And so this is important for us, to be able to ask the question, what is the church? What are the things we should be focused on? What kind of voice should be raised? What, what good can the church possibly do in this city? And so as we head into this text tonight, admittedly, I'm assuming that the, those questions are actually interesting to you. Um, even if you're not a Christian, you've somehow found your, your way into a church's worship service tonight. And, and my hope is that understanding the foundation of how things got started might help you to understand who Jesus is more clearly and what the church is more clearly. Because when we look at the world around us right now, the way that churches have taken shape isn't always faithful to what we see in these beginnings. Um, and so today's passage is the first glimpse we get in this, of this new community. We're in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. Um, if not, it'll be on the screens anyway. And in Acts chapter 2, we, we get this portrait of the early church. Um, this, this is vitally important to us. It's something that, that we need to pay careful attention to. And for us as a church, this is a passage that we teach in every single foundations class we've ever had. It's one that we've clung to and worked to shape our church around. And so that'll come through as we look at it tonight. Um, I don't know that I've ever had the chance to actually preach this passage in one of our Sunday gatherings as much as I've taught it. And so I'm pretty excited about this 
tonight, and, um, and hopefully you can get excited with me as we read it. So this is what we have in Acts chapter 2. And it's coming out of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had descended. Peter preached a sermon. His first sermon that he preached, we, we read that 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. And then verse 42 says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the foundation of the church. This is the earliest portrait we get of what a Christian church is. Um, There's two major sections in this passage that'll shape what we look at tonight. The first section, we read the uh, the things that these new believers, these new followers of Jesus devoted themselves to, and we see that their devotion, the result of their devotion was that awe came upon every soul. And so there was an awestruck wonder and a directed worship toward Jesus because of the things that these people devoted themselves to. And then it moves on to say that they also had, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And so we see the shaping aspects of their devotion to each other and how this gospel that they believed shaped the community of the church. And the result of that shaping influence of the gospel is the work of God and drawing more people to himself as he added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is what the church is called to. Redemption Hill, this is what we're called to. And so let's look at these two sections. The first thing we see is that the church is a community devoted to the gospel. That, we're, that, that, that is the foundational piece for us. And so there's four things that they devoted themselves in verse 42. Do you see them there? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So we're going to take three of those. We're going to blow out fellowship as this major, major part of the second section tonight. And so we'll, let's look at the other three briefly, what it means to be devoted to the gospel. Well, first, it means that they were devoted to right teaching. And so we read that the apostles were the ones teaching. There were leaders, qualified leaders that Jesus had appointed that were the ones that taught in this movement. And, and so it, they were scattered in each other's homes, but they also were gathered together to hear the apostles teach. And, and as the apostles stood up in authority, these leaders were able to lead well and teach well and, and give a foundation for this work of God in their midst. And the things that they taught aren't a secret for us. It's not, it wasn't some big mystery religion that, it, that hadn't been revealed. It's clear even in Acts up to this point. Because in Acts, we read about Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension into heaven, that they chose Matthias to replace Judas as the 12th apostle. And even as they were choosing Matthias, the reason they chose him is he said, one of these men must become with us a witness to Jesus' resurrection. And so that's what they were teaching. That was the foundation point. That was the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus had been raised from death to life. And they appointed a 12th apostle to be able to join these men in saying, this happened, and we are eyewitnesses that experienced the risen Lord Jesus. 
And then Peter, as he preaches the sermon, remember this section in Acts 2 isn't removed from that. It begins with the word and. It's an extension of it. It's saying he preached and 3,000 souls were added to their number and this is what they did. They continued to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what did Peter teach in Acts chapter 2? Well, he taught... He said he stood up and he, he said, this is what was, he went to the Old Testament, went to the prophet Joel and said, Joel looked ahead to a time when God would pour out his spirit and, and made this promise that he said, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter said, this Jesus, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this Jesus who was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he's saying, this Jesus is the savior that we need. Jesus is the one that we were waiting for, that was, that was prophesied about, that was promised, that if we believe in him, we will be saved. And so Jesus is our savior and his resurrection is proof of it. And he went on then to quote the Psalms and talk about David, the, the ultimate king in Israel's history. The, and, and the Jewish people were waiting for an anointed one, a Messiah to come in the line of David to lead God's people. And so Peter went again and said, this Jesus is the ultimate king. And the proof we have is that God raised him up and we're all witnesses. And so he's been exalted at the right hand of God and received the promised Holy Spirit and poured it out among us. So he's saying, this Jesus is our king. This was the message the apostles were teaching. This is the teaching that the early church was devoted to. This is what we call the gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect life, God in the flesh, that God took on flesh. He's not distant from us, but experienced everything that we experience. Jesus was betrayed by friends. Jesus experienced loneliness. He experienced the, the sorrow of losing a close friend. He wept over Lazarus when Lazarus died. Jesus got hungry and thirsty and experienced temptation. He got tired and had to pull back from his good work. He went to the cross and died in our place for our sin. Killed under Pontius Pilate, was raised from death to life and ascended to the right hand of God where he now reigns over all things. And through him, if we trust our lives to him, then we can rest in the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the foundation for the church. What we read in Ephesians 2 tonight, that, that Christ is the cornerstone, the, the piece of God's plan that gives shape and foundation to everything else he did. Then he built a foundation in the apostles, and, and now we are being built together like a spiritual house, all living stones being built into the household of God together into his church. And so it starts first and foremost with a foundation of being devoted to right teaching. Now, there's all kinds of ways that we can go off on this and miss on this as a church. We can miss on this by, by working too hard to be too relevant so that we leave behind the hard edges of Scripture, of explaining away or apologizing for God's word as if, as if the whims and winds of culture are going to be more prevalent to us. But we can fall off on the other side, too. We can have 
teaching and preaching that's so cold and dead and boring that none of us actually want to hear it or listen to it, and that's not the actually right teaching either. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, no anesthetic can ever equal some discourses and sleep-giving properties. He's talking about preachers. He said, no human being, unless gifted with infinite patience, could long endure to listen to them, and nature does well to give the victim deliverance through sleep. I mean, I know that doesn't happen here, right? But he, and he went on to say that if some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment upon them, and they would soon cry out with Cain, my punishment is far greater than I can bear. That's not right teaching either. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book of Preaching and Preachers, he wrote that, that right preaching and right explanation of the gospel and preaching and proclamation of the gospel is theology coming through a man on fire, saying that, that if we really believe this stuff, it's going to show up because we'll actually care and be passionate about it. And we can't be cold and dead in saying, I am broken and helpless on my own, but I have a great Savior and King that has redeemed me. And so right teaching is, is about doctrinal correctness, but it's also about actually having the gospel hit us at a heart level so that we experience both the fearsomeness and terrifying nature of God's holiness and the beauty of Christ's deliverance. Church, as, as we gather together week after week, we need to be careful to teach right doctrine, but to do so in a way that actually speaks to our own hearts and shows how God's word is living and active and moving among us. Not because a preacher makes it living and active, but because it is living and active and, and should be, be streaming through those who present it. We need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to not get sidetracked into other issues. There are all kinds of good things that we could come together and talk about on Sundays. All kinds of good initiatives that are happening in this world, about good issues that we could be involved in, and good causes that we could, that we could get ourselves caught up in. It's tempting to look for something new and different, but you've got to hear that if you come into this church week after week, we will address the issues in front of us. We will address, and we will, we will approach our lives together with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other to see how the gospel speaks into our world and into the struggles we face and into the systemic problems and the systemic brokenness of this place and into the pain and anguish and brokenness of our city. Sure, we will see how scripture speaks to all of those things, but there is one solution that we see over and over and over and over again. It's that Christ was crucified for us, that he's making all things new, and that our hope is that he's the one that can actually renew and restore all things. That's the only message that we have to offer. It's what we will say every single time we're together. And if the preacher messes up and doesn't talk about Jesus, then we have communion right after the sermon so we can say, hey, by the way, the only reason we're here is because his body was broken and his blood was spilled, so let's recenter this thing. And so a a devotion to the gospel, a devotion to the apostles' teaching is the same devotion that we long for and work toward as a church, to be clear on this foundational aspect that we are devoted to right teaching. Second, devoted to right worship. And so we see this, that they were devoted. They came together in fellowship. They had the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so we see this foundation, this pattern for worship already in this first gathering of the New Testament church. These gatherings are described that there was teaching and communion and prayer together. 
We know that they sang together and they were commanded to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And so singing was a part of worship. And, and so even at the beginning, they were gathering together and worship together. Now, it talks about breaking bread later on, and that is, there, that is also language just for having a meal together. There are plenty of times in Scripture where we read that somebody sat down and they broke bread together, and that means having a meal. We still use that language um, if you really want to be super formal. None of us are like, hey, on Saturday night we sat down and broke bread together. But if somebody said that, you would know at least what they were trying to mean. But... The, the key for us here is that there's a definite article, the word the, before this. Later on, it says that they were breaking bread in each other's homes, and so that was, they were eating together and having a meal together. By the way, this is why we as a church have such a strong theology of food, because it's everywhere in Scripture. But I think there's something different that, that Luke, the author, is trying to capture for us here. The breaking of bread and the prayers is, I, I believe, he's capturing the gathered worship of the church. He's talking about the meal that Jesus had instituted to break bread and, and remember that he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. To raise a glass of wine and say, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. To do that as a, as a gathered community, as a sacrament given to us from Christ. Now, I do also believe that when we gather in each other's homes, whether it's community groups or just people, the people of God gathered outside of this sacramental moment of worship, that there's echoes of that that continue, that every time we share a meal and raise a glass together, we still are looking ahead to the ultimate banquet in Christ's presence. And we can raise a glass to the king, knowing that we're celebrating that we are united through Jesus. But so, so here, there's right worship as they're gathered together, and the gospel shapes and centers their worship together. And, and so this, for us, is important, too. As a church, we work on our, in our gatherings to be intentional with everything that we say and everything that we do in this time that we spend together every Sunday. We're constantly working to streamline our gatherings and cut out anything that doesn't lead our hearts to worship, that doesn't show us something of the gospel. And so there's all kinds of silliness and nonsense that churches can get themselves caught up in. We don't need to get into any of that. It's not that, the, that extra elements are inherently wrong, but we do work toward an intentionality as, as, a, as a body. That's why we hired Brian as a pastor of liturgy and spiritual formation, is so we have pastoral oversight into what's happening in our gatherings. And worship is essential to the church. Peter says this in, in his letter later on in 1 Peter. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And the purpose that God has called us to himself, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, when we gather together on Sundays, we gather together so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his light. That's what we're doing here, is we're celebrating together what God has done for us in Christ. And so every Sunday, we, we begin by gathering, and there's a call to worship and confession and assurance. Then we have listening, where we hear God's word read to us and give you the chance to participate in God's word being read by expressing your worship and praise and thanksgiving as we read God's word. And so that's why every time we read scripture, we say, this is the word of the Lord. And you respond, thanks be to God. Because we don't want you to come in and spectate at worship. We don't want this to be an event where you come in and evaluate the show. 
And if you're new tonight, and I know some of that's hard when you're looking for a new church, because you are, you're evaluating the music and the lyrics of the music and the style of the music and the preacher and whether the preacher was funny enough and cutting enough, but not too funny or too cutting. And, and so there's all kinds of things that we're laying out, but I, I want you to, like there's an intentionality in what we've done to try to make you, make worship participatory for you. And then the, the word is preached and God's word is opened and explained for us. And then we move to communing together that we celebrate the Lord's table, with, that we're in communion, united with God and with others. And we have a time, most of our music comes after that point, and it's a response to God's word as we sing and, 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 and spill our hearts out to him. And then we end with a benediction, which is sending you out from Monday to Saturday. So there's been a good and right emphasis over the last 15 years or so on you know, the, the scattered church and uh, an emphasis on, you know, church doesn't stop being church. We say these things as a church. You don't stop being the church just because it's a Tuesday night. The, the church isn't an, an event. It's not a meeting. It's not a special place in time. It's not just a building. And, and, and these are good emphases that, that are true, that church is more than what happens on Sundays. And yet, what happens as we gather in worship is vital it's vital to the witness of the gospel. Paul told Timothy that the church is a pillar, it is God's pillar and buttress for the truth. It's vital for your life spiritually. We have such a tendency to individualize our faith. And it's important for us to see that what we see in Acts 2 is people in each other's lives together. It doesn't say... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in their own private quiet times. It doesn't say they devoted themselves to their prayers alone, struggling through it and falling asleep. It says they were together, and these are the things they devoted themselves to together. It's in the plural, that they, as a community, were devoted to these things and so as we gather to worship every Sunday, this church and the churches that gather on every Sunday throughout the city are a witness to God's power. And so it's good also to be in each other's lives and homes, and it's true that the Spirit moves in significant ways in that setting and differently when we're gathered together in worship. And so there's a call to us. The author of Hebrews, I mean, it wasn't new in the early church that people would, would minimize the gathered worship of the church. And so even in Hebrews, he wrote, hey, let's consider how to stir one up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So listen, there's a lot that's offered at this point. Technology has made it possible for you to download podcasts from the best preachers all across the country, anybody that you would want to listen to anytime. Even here as a church, like we record audio and video right now, like if people are watching at home, I can look at the camera and wave, and somebody will feel super awkward and like convicted watching this now and think that I'm guilt tripping them. And I don't want to do that. Like, the reason we offer these things is because we want you to be able to access these things. And we know that people access them beyond the reach of what we can have on Sunday mornings and evenings. And that's important. But those are to supplement. The discipline of regularly gathering as part of the church will shape you spiritually in profound ways. And so make it a discipline to gather together. The third aspect is that they were devoted to prayer. 
And so it's it, right there. They were devoted to the prayers. They were with each other, praising God in, in their lives, but they also were devoted to prayer. Now, us, for us, we need to hear this. This is a constant corrective that we need because we will naturally, none of us naturally slide into a vibrant prayer life. We don't naturally, without trying, end up finding ourselves like, wow, I just had an intense hour-long time of prayer on my face before God. Like, this is not, that's not our natural drift. But I think also we have a tendency to, again, individualize and personalize our understanding of this. And so for so many Christians, I think there's this feeling of like, I've got to get my personal prayer life figured out. And until I do that, there's no way I'm praying with other people. What I want you to see is it kind of has flipped upside down for this early church that we read about. They were devoted together to prayer. And maybe what you need to jumpstart your prayer life is to stop trying to do it on your own and actually get together with people and pray. To lean into that time of prayer with your community group and actually leave time for prayer as a community group. To, to actually come to the things that, that we, and engage in prayer that we as a church do corporately, to pray, to engage in your heart and in your soul as we pray together as a church here, to pray in your community groups and leave time for that, to pray. We, we quarterly gather together every quarter, and most of what happens, it's, yes, there's a members meeting where we handle some official church business, but most of what happens is that we sing together and pray together. We pray corporately, we break into smaller groups and pray, we sometimes create opportunities to pray as an individual, so come to those and engage with those and pray with people around you. We have a monthly prayer gathering that's been happening, I think on the first Sundays of the month, it's pushed out on CCB every single month where we have a group of people that have been showing up to pray kingdom prayers, to see God's work and his spirit move among our church and in our city. Make that a priority and show up and pray and pray on your own. But if you're struggling to pray, do it with the people that God's put around you. Start there and you might be surprised that it starts to bleed into your, your life on your own. But church, I could talk about this and preach about this until I'm blue in the face. We can, we can bring it up in our community groups, but we need to understand that if we don't pray, we're saying something about what we believe about God's ability to move and act. We're saying something about our own self-sufficiency, and we can never expect God's spirit to move among us because if we don't come to him in desperation and devotion to prayer. H.B. Charles, a preacher, said this. He said, prayer is our Christian duty. It's an expression of submission to God and dependence upon him. And for, for that matter, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. Think of it this way. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. I don't know about you, but left on my own without a constant reminder through God's word and through other people around me of my desperation and need for Christ, my drift is always toward self-sufficiency. It's always toward how am I gonna solve this problem? What am I gonna do to work my way out? What am I gonna, even if I, if I sit with somebody, what am I gonna do to solve your problem? Instead of saying, time out, there's one person that can transform hearts and it's not me. Like in my marriage, when, you know, this is something that I was convicted about years ago is that, that married couples can spend their entire marriage trying to believe that they are the Holy Spirit on their spouse. Like to believe I am the sanctifier for Alyssa. That never works. 
Not once in almost 17 years has she gone, thank you so much for deciding to sanctify me. But it is true that when I see things that I would love to see transformed in her, not because of my own selfishness, but because I want to see her flourish in her life, that when I spend time praying, knowing that God is the one who can bring those about, then I, he is way, has a way better success rate than I do. We need to reach a point where we just admit that we're not as in control as we think and that we need God's help. That'll drive us to prayer. So they're a community who prays together, and prayer should be like breathing to the gathered church. Every pause, we should return to prayer, prayer that's shaped by God's word and focused on Christ's kingdom and, and prayers for God's provision and help. And so this is the foundation. This is where things start. And don't be fooled into thinking that this is the pinnacle. I think there are some theological streams and tribes, and, and, and my own streams and tribes, that we begin to think if we just get this stuff right, we've done it. We've got the church figured out. We've got right teaching and right worship and a devotion to prayer. And so there, everything that needs to happen has happened. And every, any problem that happens in our lives or in our churches, we can say, hey, maybe the, one of these three things is the problem. You're not praying enough or you're not worshiping rightly. You know, your worship is broken or you're not believing the gospel well enough. The truth is you can believe all of the right things. You can have the most carefully considered right approach to worship, and you can have a consistent, at least rhythm of prayer, whether or not it's authentic, and you've not moved into the stuff of the Christian life. This isn't the pinnacle, it's the starting point. And so is this, with this foundation, though, then we look ahead to the stuff of the Christian life. As the Spirit flows through God's people from this foundation, then it will be a community that's shaped by the gospel as well. And so now it's time to move on to the real stuff of Christian life off of just the foundational elements. Now, everything, and so in that, getting all of our beliefs and practices right it can open the doors even for pride in our rightness. And that's the problem is that we can, we can become so proud if we've got these, those three elements nailed that we miss the power of God moving in us and laying hold of us individually and collectively shaping us. And so right telling of the gospel paired with a right expression of the effects of the gospel is when the power of God moves. Now look what happened. I think for, for us, for me, I can tend to look at, the, at, the, at what happened at Pentecost and say, that's what it looks like. That's what I want to see. There were 3,000 people saved that day. Now I, as a preacher, have never preached to 3,000 people, let alone seen 3,000 people respond in salvation in one day. So there's, some, there's longings that I have where like, I want to see that happen. This week, we, we said goodbye to Billy Graham, who was a giant in the faith. Billy Graham got to preach to thousands and hundreds of thousands of people at a time and saw those kinds of things happen. And I think there's times where we can fool ourselves, though, into thinking that's the only way that, we, that God will work. And then we miss that what happened here is there were the 3,000 souls saved, but then the enduring witness of a newly formed, spirit-filled community was a, brought a steady, slow work as God continued to call people to himself. And so let's pray for both. I want to see an ingathering of people coming to Christ. Some of you have recently turned to Christ and we're looking ahead to celebrating baptisms on Easter and I can't wait. I love to be able to celebrate new life in baptism and I want more to join us. And so the gospel shaped this community and the way that it shaped this community is that they were devoted to each other in fellowship. 
They didn't just individualize their faith, they were devoted to one another. And this word fellowship is, is an important word in the Bible. It's the word koinonia. Now, this is important because like, I started going to church for the first time when I was in middle school. And when I went to the church I went to, fellowship had a very precise meaning that usually included kind of a dingy fellowship hall and casserole. I'm not going to rip on casserole if that's your thing. <laughs> But I can remember thinking, like, that's weird. Like, I, don't, I didn't see casserole in the New Testament church. And so maybe there's something different that fellowship could mean. Fellowship is, is Luke uses that word here, this word koinonia. And koinos is, is the core of the root of that word. And that simply means common. Like the Greek used in the New Testament is called koine Greek. It's common Greek. And so koinonia is, is life that's shared in common. That means that, that fellowship is more than just casserole. It's life shared together. Fellowship is what everything that follows in that second section, that they were all together and had all things in common, and people were selling their things to help each other out. And today, day by day, they were together in the temple, breaking bread in their homes. They received their, their, their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God and had favor with all the people. And so this is what koinonia is, is it's people involved in each other's lives intimately and consistently and regularly in in, in uh, a commonality together. You know, this word koinonia appears 19 times in the New Testament, but this is the first occurrence. Koinonia, that deep fellowship couldn't happen until the Spirit of God had come to create it in his people. And we read in 1 John that we are invited into the fellowship of the Godhead, that the triune God experiences this common life within the Godhead, and that we are united with him in communion, in, in koinonia fellowship with God, and then we are bound together with each other in common life. And so Again, we need to hear this because so often our perspective on Christian spirituality, on, on our walk with Christ, gets so deeply individualized. And it does become, you know, everything that you hear and every, every time you feel like you're slipping off or missing the mark or you just feel like you feel cold and dead spiritually, the first thing you think is like, well, I haven't been doing my quiet times like I'm supposed to. Quiet times are great. If you set aside time daily to read your Bible and to pray, that is a great discipline and a great practice. And it is not a magic key to unlock the secrets of God. For most of Christian history, people didn't have access to their own copies of the Bible. In Acts 2, they didn't have the New Testament. They were writing it. It wasn't like they got together and said, hey, let's do an in-depth study of Galatians. There was no church in Galatia in Acts 2. And yet, the Spirit of God was able to move through them in power so listen, I don't want to tell you don't do quiet times, but I do want to tell you maybe that's not the starting point. Maybe that's an outflow for you, and maybe the starting point actually begins with us together. Maybe the starting point in your pursuit of Christ is deeply embedded in a community, in common life together, and, you, and we should focus more on the discipline of community than on individualized disciplines that take us out of community so that we can go and pursue God in some ascetic manner to try to get some vision from him. If we individualize our faith, we, we can risk losing out on God's design for us. And so we see the shaping effect of, this, of the Spirit on this community right here in Acts 2. First, we see that they come together with gracious hospitality. 
that they're in each other's homes, sharing as any had need. And, and I know for some of you, your home is a place you don't want to invite anybody. And I know that it can be awkward. For some of you, you're like, everybody should come over. That's, that's, the, the point here is that they were in each other's lives, though. And hospitality is something that was beautifully practiced here because the grace and generosity of God was flowing through his people to others and to each other. And hospitality never makes logical sense. It never makes sense as being the most efficient thing to do. Like, it's, there's never a point where you go, you know what would make sense on my bills this month is I'm going to invite a bunch of people to my house so they can eat my food and drink my drink. But something's cultivated when we get together. Something's cultivated when we sit down at a table together. Something's cultivated when we come into each other's spaces and gather together. Something develops there. And, and I think, too, we need to hear that hospitality is not the same as service because we can think of hospitality. For some of you, like, the barrier is, like, you're like, I don't, I don't think my table setting is that Instagrammable. Like, you see what people post, and you're like, that is way nicer and fancier than anything I could ever dream up, so I'm just never inviting anyone over ever. Now, think about it this way. When you go and sit down at a restaurant, they work really hard to make it feel like hospitality, but it's ultimately service. They're serving you and giving you what you want, inviting you into a place where you can order what you want, and you go and use the goods and services and you leave. For too many of us, that's how you might approach church and your community group. You come in, you're looking for goods and services, and then you leave, wondering if you've gotten your money's worth. You go into a community group and you think, well, I'm here, Am I going to get the things out of this that I'm looking for? And if you're hosting it, you think, okay, I've got to do these things so that people get the things out of it they're looking for. Service is saying, I have something you need, and I'll give it to you. Hospitality is saying, I'm going to welcome you into my home, my life, into relationship, and I'm going to sit with you. That's the difference. The Redemption Hill is a family that graciously welcomes people into loving community. That's the core of hospitality. And so for us, even as we look at how we in, in, in embrace people in our city, we are looking to invite people into community, not just to do good things to serve. And so gracious hospitality shaped this early community. The second is unified diversity. If you've been around Redemption Hill, this might sound familiar, like familiar language because we shaped our core values out of this text. And th this is what we see here, that, that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And so, when we say diversity here, like, you might say, like, what do you mean, where are you drawing that from this text? Well, I'll tell you, is that earlier in Acts 2, when, right before pre Peter preached his sermon, we learn in verse 9 that there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. There were both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, and they all heard the gospel proclaimed in their own languages. And so now when we read, and they all were together, and they, they, all of them were brought together because they were united in belief in Christ. Everyone who believed and who had come to Christ was together. And so they came from all over the place, all kinds of regions, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicities. And, and I know when I read that, for most of you, you're probably going like, I don't know what any of those places are. And so it just sounded like the teacher on Charlie Brown. I don't know what Phrygia is in Pamphylia, and that's fine. You don't need to know where those places were on a map to know that these are people from everywhere. And they were brought together, and what held them together was that they had an ultimate identity that had been reshaped by their belief in Christ. 
And so it's not that those people were erased. They brought everything they were and every, everything in their background to that new community. And we see the tensions that developed in the early church because of this. But they were brought together in unity because of Christ. And so the church is a community made more beautiful by its diversity. The gospel is transcultural. And it should shape the church into a community of people from a diversity of backgrounds and socioeconomic positions and neighborhoods and regions and political ideologies and ethnicities, all woven together into a tapestry that is made more beautiful by its diversity. And that's what we long for as a church. You realize the political diversity was already built in on Jesus' team. Remember, he had a zealot on his team that hated Rome and wanted to overthrow them by military force, and he had a tax collector who was working for the government and extorting his own people. They were on the same team together, and so Jesus built this kind of thing into the community from the beginning. The church reflects unified diversity. The third is empowered intentionality. They lived alongside each other empowered by the Spirit, shaped by the Spirit, intentionally providing for each other's needs, living self-sacrificially. And they were in the temple together, which was like the marketplace of that city at the time. And they were out in their city, and lost people were saved. And, and they were able to live such good lives, which Peter calls the church to later. So he said, live so well that even though they speak against you, that, that on the day that Christ returns, they will glorify God with us. And so they had, they had favor with all the people. In Redemption Hill, we are committed to intentionally equip members of this church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do the work of ministry. We gather for worship, devoted to right teaching and right worship and to prayer, and then we, we scatter out from this place, empowered by the Spirit of God to go and, and continue his work and, and deeply contextualize ministry that you, we want you to reach the people that God has placed in your life, your coworkers, your neighbors, People that, are un- that you are uniquely placed to be able to tell good news to. And then a fourth aspect um, that I haven't cleared with the elders yet, but I'd like to make it a fourth core value. So they're not here right now. They came this morning. Um, is really joyful celebration, joyful generosity. They had glad and generous hearts. And this might be the most amazing part. This was not a begrudging self-sacrifice. It also wasn't like a showy, look at me living. It wasn't them saying like, hey, look at the ways I've done this. Let me, you know, let me tell you about my gracious hospitality. In fact, you know, I've been having so many meals with people, like I want the church to start reimbursing me when I submit my receipts. It wasn't them saying like, hey, you know, look at the people I've gotten to know, and I'm really laying myself down so that other people different than me can be a part of this thing celebrating themselves. It wasn't them, them moaning about, about you're not doing enough for me and I'm, you know, I'm really the one that's bearing the work of all of these things. It, what they, there was joy instead of grumbling. That's the work of the Spirit. They were selling things to help each other out, come alongside each other. That's the work of the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. And there can be little doubt but that exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. Now, does that mean we need to have like silly grins on our face and minimize suffering and pretend like things are always going fine? No. 
But it does mean that even in the worst of circumstances, the gospel frees us to have real joy. That we we can live self-sacrificial lives and realize that it's a more joyful path because we're following Christ in it. So Redemption Hill, I want our church, and we are a church that celebrates well. To be able to celebrate well and be joyful together well, to come alongside of each other and, and show off the joy of the gospel that we believe and, and receive everything we have and receive everyone we encounter with, with gratitude and generosity and gladness and, and joy and love because that shows off something of the beauty of the gospel. This kind of self-sacrificial living. And this is stuff that we see in our church that I love to see. That when people move in this church, all they have to do is post something on CCB or tell their community group and like floods of people come, which happens like weekly in this church, right? That, you know, that when, you know, a tree gets hacked down on the side of the building on a Sunday and somebody's bike gets stolen, later that week he has a new bike because his friends all chipped in for him. That when, you know, there are families in this church that basically just share children. Did you know that? If you don't have kids, you might not realize that. But like, I never know who's going to be sleeping in our house on any given night. There are plenty of times where I'm like, oh, we have two more kids tonight. Might as well. Come on in. And, but we're able to share parenting and, and come alongside each other in those things. When we learn about people who have needs, that, that so often it's not the organization of Redemption Hill that's meeting each other, meeting people's needs. It's the people, you, the church, that are coming alongside each other self-sacrificially, and that's the stuff of Acts 2. We see it in this church. I mean, little things about living life alongside each other, not always tangible needs even. Um, this week, we had um, someone in our church who is becoming a member, and she lost her brother. And, and I got a call on Thursday asking, saying, we have nobody, can you come out here and do a funeral on Saturday? And so on Saturday, I was planning on going to my daughter's swim meet. And, um, but put things on hold because a family and, and a member of our body needed help. And so as I went out and served that family on Saturday out in the Shenandoah Valley, two people from our community group went with my daughter. She knows that this church is her family. And they were able to stand in, in my place, to be able to cheer her on and celebrate and support her. This is what it looks like to be shaped by the gospel. And, and we need to understand, like, you see why, like, we can't, we need both of these aspects, right? Like, there are plenty of churches that, are, that have the first foundation right. They believe the right things, their worship is shaped rightly, they at least get the formal prayers right. There's, there's nothing wrong in those aspects, but the shaping beauty of the gospel doesn't come through. We've walked into those churches it's kind of a church where you walk in and you're like, gosh, I don't ever want to go there again. It's just cold. And we've also seen what it looks like to have a community that can be shaped, but there are some churches that might as well just be a CrossFit gym. And CrossFit gyms think they're churches. I did CrossFit for a year, and it's true. It's a cult. <laughs> like, and I loved it. I, like, I've never been in better shape in my life, and I got strong, and it was great, and the workouts were great. But my gosh, it, I mean, like, as a business model, they've captured something of, of the beauty of the need for community. They've really spoken to a deep need there, but it's not founded on the gospel. As, as a church, I don't want to give up either of those elements. We need the foundation and truth. I mean, we, you know, we're, this is what the church is, is we're, we're devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
this is our place in this world. We're not, we, yeah, the gospel has implications into life in this world, but we're not first and foremost, uh, you know, political punditry. And we're not, yet we're not also detached from real life. We are the people of God gathered together to proclaim the good news of who Christ is and what he's done. To be regularly called week after week, all of us, to belief and repentance because we never outgrow the need for belief and repentance. And a community shaped by the gospel. And do you see the effects of this in Acts 2? Awe came upon every soul, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were driven to worship as their spirits and their eyes were drawn to Christ, and God added to their number. Church, this is the stuff of revival. This is what I long for and plead with God for is that that the spirit of God would work in the slow spread of the word of God using his people, us, as his instruments. And so if we want to see the power of God in our midst, let's devote ourselves to the gospel. Let's be a people who are shaped by the gospel and then pray that the spirit of God would work and bring sweet fellowship among us that forces us outward into our city so that other people can join the family of God. As our father calls more sons and daughters to himself through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We long for you. We long for the presence of your spirit. We long for the things that we read about here. Would you help us to be devoted to the gospel, to write teaching of, of your word and write teaching of theology? Would you help us to be devoted to write worship in the celebration of, of the sacraments? Would you help us to be devoted to prayer, to come together in prayer and have individual prayer lives as we, as we long for and plead with and are, are reliant on you? And would you help us to be devoted to one another in fellowship, shaped by the gospel as a community so that, so that the truth that we proclaim is shown off in the beauty of the family in this church? Father, we long for these things. We're so grateful for the way that you've shaped this family already. And we plead with you to continue your work in and among and through us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.